I would ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we read our passage for this morning. Um, this morning I'm going to be preaching from Luke 17, uh, 26 to 37, uh, but I'm going to read from back in, in verse 20. So, uh, so Luke 17, 20 to 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given a marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, authoritative, and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach you in your word this morning, we pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts through the power of your spirit. Help us, I pray, Lord, to see our King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to earnestly desire the advance of His kingdom in our hearts and in the world. Help us, Lord, as we consider these things, Lord, to pray from the depths of our hearts, come, Lord Jesus. We pray also, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would do a work of regeneration so that, that those who are, are not yet born again would, would see the kingdom of God and enter the kingdom of God through the grace that can only be found in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I preached through the book of Malachi, and I remember really well on, on the Sunday morning when I was, I was finishing Malachi, I looked out, I woke up early on the Sunday morning and, and I, and I, as I looked out the window, it, it, it was so hazy 
that I, I couldn't even see the back fence, just at the, the back side of our parking lot. And at first I, I thought it was fog. Where I grew up, we had, we had foggy days and then you'd have thick, thick fog like that. But when I, I opened the door, the thick smell of, of acrid smoke met my nostrils. And I, this is when the situation dawned on me. I realized that it was, it was smoke, that the wind had changed and had brought smoke from, from other forest fires into our valley. Like, you know, when you're, when you're camping and you're, you're sitting by the campfire and, and the, the wind shifts and it blows the smoke in your face and then you, you move and so, for some reason the smoke seems to follow you. you could, there's nowhere to go to escape from the smoke. It was everywhere. And the smoke that we saw back then was, it was even worse than the smoke that we had last week. And, and I'd anticipate as I was planning on, on beginning last week to get all the way through to the, the end of, of this chapter of Luke 17, I thought, well, it's once again, we're, we're preaching about the, the day of burning and fire and smoke. And, and this is an example of, of, you may have heard of pathetic fallacy, where the, there's an element of, of nature that is personified and, and really fits the mood of the story. And so the smoke fit the mood of the story. And then, well, I'm not, I didn't know what the weather was going to be like this week. But I'm very thankful that we had, we had rain and the, and the shift in wind that it's really, at least for now, lessened, lessened the risk of fire. But in Malachi chapter 4, 1 to 3, the prophet speaks of a day that is coming, burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The prophet says that the day that is coming shall set them ablaze. He says, on the day when the Lord of hosts acts, you shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Well, again, I think, as I said, that the fires that are burning around us provide a, an appropriate backdrop as we consider the judgment that comes with the consummation of the kingdom of God. Realize there's 400, 391 fires burning in BC. There's 4,514 properties on evacuation orders. And as Joshua explained, the entire city of Vernon has been on evacuation alert. Now, thankfully, the, the, the rain and the changing conditions lessen the immediate risk, but the risk is still there. That fire is still huge. It's 550 square kilometers. This is a massive fire. Earlier this summer, we saw the, the tragedy of, of, of the Lytton fire. We'll be talking about it later, where, where residents had only minutes to flee before fire consumed the entire town. And I think it's a, it's a small microcosm. It's a little picture of what judgment looks like. Now, I'm not saying that, that Lytton is under judgment because of, because of the fires. We, we can't know all that God is doing in his providences. Again, as Joshua said, the rain God causes the rain to fall on the, the righteous and the unrighteous. Fire will burn the cities that include the righteous and unrighteous people. But as we think about yesterday, what it was like for the, 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 those 4,514 families not allowed to enter back into their homes or over 50,000 people in Vernon wondering if, if the the conditions were going to continue and that their homes would be consumed. We think about the fact that 
that this, this White Rock Lake fire is, it's, it's a monster of a fire and it's, it's consuming everything in its path and it's, it's going to bring destruction wherever it goes. But yesterday afternoon in another spot, not too far away, a young woman dressed in white walked slowly toward the man she loves. While friends and family gathered in the warm sunshine and the, and the birds in the trees sung the chorus. And the pastor explained to the couple the, the ultimate purpose of their marriage is, was to be a display of Christ in the church. He reminded them of, of God's superintending grace. And the flowers, flowers that, that surrounded the, the field smiled back at the sun as if to, to, to give approval of what was taking place in the ceremony. Until the sprinklers turned on. It's another story. But finally, as the couple were pronounced husband and wife, the young man took his young bride and, and kissed her. And for the purposes of embellishment for the first time, and the, the guests burst into applause. And a flock of white doves took off from a nearby tree in perfectly synchronized flight. That's pathetic fallacy. But it's a picture. You see that, that we have two very close to each other, two very contrasting situations on the very same day. One entire city worried about being burned to the ground while a couple and their family and friends are, are celebrating the joy of marriage. The very same day. One day with two starkly contrasting situations for two groups of people. And both groups of people are reflected in our passage this morning in, in Luke 17, 26 to 37. This passage contains very different circumstances for two groups of people. Judgment and joy. Death and life. Destruction and creation. Wrath and love. Rejection and intimacy. Condemnation and vindication. And both will be on full display at the vindication and the consummation of the kingdom of God. Last time we, we saw that the kingdom of God is, is already not yet. As in Luke 20 to, uh, 17, 20 to 25, Jesus spoke about the, the presence and the promise of the kingdom of God. We saw that, that God's kingdom came and God's kingdom will come. Jesus told the Pharisees in, in verses 20 to 21 that the kingdom was already here. He told them about the, the presence of the kingdom of God. He told them the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God was right there around them. But these Pharisees could not enter the kingdom, let alone see the kingdom because they rejected the king. The kingdom of God is already here because the king is here. The kingdom of God had been inaugurated with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Again, the Pharisees couldn't, couldn't see the kingdom or, or the king because, because they were not born again. The kingdom came, but they were not part of it. And then verses 22 to 25, Jesus turned to speak to the disciples. He, he told them that the kingdom is not yet. To the disciples, he, he spoke of the promise of the kingdom of God. They would desire to see the days of the Son of Man, but, but it would not happen yet. They, they would desire to see the consummation of the kingdom of God, but would not see it. 
As they suffered persecution, they would long to see the glorification of King Jesus and his kingdom. And the disciples of Jesus Christ are still longing to see the glorification of King Jesus in his kingdom. But we wait. We wait. So we're, we're in this in-between time, in the already and not yet. But now as we, we turn to Luke 17, verses 26 to, to 37, now Jesus is not really speaking about the, the presence and the promise of the kingdom directly, but, but about past and future judgment and joy. There is judgment for the citizens of the kingdom of darkness and joy for the citizens of the kingdom of God. In verses 26 to 30, there's, there's past judgment and, and past joy that points ahead to the kingdom of God. And in verses 31 to 7, there's, there's future judgment and future joy at the revelation of the Son of Man and the consummation of the kingdom of God. So again, there are, are two groups of people in the world. Two groups. And the only difference between them is their response to Christ. Their response to Christ. On the day when the Son of Man is revealed, these two groups will be fully and finally revealed. One group will go into everlasting judgment, and the other group will go into everlasting joy. So let's, let's consider past and future judgment and joy in relation to the kingdom of God. Verses 26 to 30, past judgment and joy. Again, after talking to the Pharisees about the, the present establishment of the kingdom of God and to the disciples about the future establishment of the kingdom of God, rather future fulfillment of the kingdom of God, Jesus now shifts back to the, fa back to the past in order to speak about the future. Jesus is speaking about the, the past in order to speak about the future, to reveal something about the future. And so first, Jesus uses, he uses these two examples of, of past judgment to, to demonstrate, at least in part, what judgment will look like in the future, in the days of the Son of Man. And both examples of judgment were very familiar to the Jewish people. They're very familiar even to the, the broader culture today, that they would, they would reject the historicity of, of these events. Well, first of all, we have the destruction of almost all life on earth in a global flood. And the second is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire brimstone from heaven. So these, these two past judgments are, are pictures or, or types that reveal in part the, the judgment that will take place when the Lord returns to establish his kingdom. And notice that the section begins, verse 26 and 30, the section begins and ends with a mention of the, the days or the day of the Son of Man. And so more on that, on that shortly. But the first example that, that Jesus gives that of the days of Noah, this first judgment. He speaks of people eating, drinking, marrying until the flood destroyed them all. Now, Jesus will speak of this as well on another occasion in, in Matthew 24, where it's speaking directly of the, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but, but it has in view the final judgment there as well. Now, we know about 
what the world was like in the days of Noah. We're told about it in Genesis 6, 5. The people were extremely sinful at that time. The, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, in many respects, that could be used to describe much of, of what we see in our day. Yet in this passage, the, the endemic sinfulness in the world doesn't seem to be Jesus' focal point. He doesn't mention it. He doesn't allude to the wickedness of people at that time. Rather, he's simply saying that, that people were living their lives oblivious to the coming destruction. Even Noah's warnings went unheeded. Peter refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2.5. Even the, the building of the ark and the, and the whole time that took, that was a testimony that something was coming. But the people rejected the warning. From their perspective, from the people outside of the ark, when, when the deluge took them, it seemed as though it was, was sudden. As they'd been consumed with their day-to-day -day activities of life. One moment they were carrying out their daily business, and the next they were swept away by the waters of the flood. My mind goes to the footage from the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. We see people lounging on the beach. When all of a sudden a massive wall of water comes and sweeps them all away. It was horrific. At least 225,000 people died. But the death toll of the great flood was every man, woman, and child on the entire planet. But even in the midst of, of all that horror and all that tragedy, there was joy. You have to look carefully to see it, but look at verse 27. Noah went into the ark. Every man, woman, and child on the planet died on that day. Except for Noah and his family. Eight souls were all that was left. And they were safe on the inside. With all of the, the terror that was taking place outside. Imagine that the joy that Noah and his family realizes God fulfilled his promise of the coming flood. And fulfilled his promise that he was going to spare them from its destruction. Imagine the, the thanksgiving and the, the worship that, that would be offered up to God. And we, we see this when as soon as they, they come off the ark after about a year, they, the, he's a, he immediately offers a sacrifice. Thanking God and praising God for his deliverance. You remember in Genesis 9.16, there's a, a rainbow. As a sign of God's covenant, he'll never again destroy the world in this way by water. The second example is similar. The days of Lot. Just like in the days of Noah, they were engaged in the business of life. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building until fire and sulfur from heaven destroyed them all. Now, once again, these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, were, were infamous for their wickedness and the outcry against them was great and their sin was very grave. Genesis 18, 20. But once again, it doesn't seem that their sin is what is in focus here. 
Rather, it was the fact that they were oblivious and just carrying on their daily business, which included sin. Until the day when destruction came. Even though Abraham interceded for them, even though Lot warned them, they were so wrapped up in their daily affairs that utter destruction met them unawares. They were suddenly consumed in the conflagration. They were utterly destroyed by the hand of God. On August 6th, 1945, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima, Japan. The bomb was codenamed Little Boy. They had a, a yield equivalent to 15 kilotons or 15,000 tons of TNT. This bomb killed upwards of 140,000 people, almost half of the population of the city. There was no warning. Most of the dead were vaporized in the initial, in the initial blast. Then three days later, the United States sent another plane, the intended target being Kokura, another Japanese city, but, but clouds and smoke obscured the target. And so the plane was diverted to a secondary target, Nagasaki. This time, a 20-kiloton bomb called Fat Man killed as many as 80,000 people, one-third of the population of the city. But like the little city of Zoar and the plains of Moab near Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Kokura were, were spared. But imagine their, imagine their relief when they realized that, that they were the intended target. But it would have been mixed with, with grief and, and, and horror at the loss of life in Nagasaki. Now, we don't know that the population of the cities of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the entire population of those cities died on those days, on those two days. Sorry, rather... Sorry, in Sodom and Gomorrah on that, on that very day. There are only three survivors, Lot and his two daughters. Again, there was joy. Joy at being delivered from certain death. But the joy would, would have been mixed with grief. For, for among the dead were, were Lot's two sons-in-law. And the dead included his own wife. We're going to discuss shortly. But even still, even in their grief, Lot and his two daughters would have been exceedingly thankful and joyful over their deliverance. Peter refers to Lot as a righteous man who had agonized over the sin that he saw around him. We might look at Lot's life and think, really? In the same way, we might, we might look at Noah and think, wow, in Genesis 10, he's getting drunk. Neither Noah or Lot were paragons of virtue. God did not have mercy on them because of their righteousness that was inherent to them. God had mercy on them because of his sovereign grace. As he made them trophies of his grace for the glory of his name. But as we think about now, again, about what's, what's past, it points ahead to what's coming. It points ahead, as, as Jesus tells us here, to the, the coming day or days of the Son of Man. Again, these are mentioned in verse 20 and verse 30. It sort of forms an, an inclusio for, for this section. We spoke about it last week from verses 22 and 24. Again, the, the days of the Son of Man. Remember that the Son of Man is the title 
that, that is used to describe the Messiah in, in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. As the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and is given authority and dominion over the kingdom of God for all eternity. And as Jesus says repeatedly, I think it's, about, it's over 25 times in Luke's gospel that, that he is the Son of Man. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. And so the, the, the days of the Son of Man refers to the, the coming consummation of the kingdom of God where Christ is revealed in his full glory. It will be a euphoric day or a dreadful day, depending on your perspective. As horrific as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of the earth was in those days, there is a greater destruction coming. God promised Noah in his covenant that he would not destroy the world again by, fire, by water, but he's going to destroy, destroy it again by fire. Today, the explosive yields of, of hydrogen bombs are measured in megatons. One megaton is equivalent to one million tons of TNT. Were such a bomb to drop on a city today, it would result in total annihilation. A global thermonuclear war would, would result in the annihilation of human life on the entire planet. I grew up in the 1980s during the Cold War, and I, I, it, the threat of nuclear war was, was constantly being reminded to us and, and hung over our heads. And I still to this day have, have nightmares where, where I will open the front door of my house to see mushroom clouds on the horizon. But what's coming is even more horrific than that. What's coming, the final judgment will be much worse. The heavens and the earth will, will melt away with the fervent heat of God's judgment. Making a thermonuclear bomb look like a mere firecracker in comparison. But that's only part of the story. That's only part of the story because, because what's coming is also glorious. What's coming is, is also is a, a great joy for the believer. We're eagerly anticipating that day in the full realization that there's going to be destruction and judgment. There's also going to be salvation and joy for those who are trusting in Christ. What's coming in the future is going to be much better even than the deliverance that, that Noah and his family enjoyed. It's going to be much better even than the deliverance that Lot and his daughters enjoyed. With Noah, only one of his sons was saved. We don't know about his wife or his, or his, his, or his daughters-in-law. With Lot, Lot was saved, but it appears that his daughters, his daughters went to eternal torment. The coming deliverance is going to be much better for the people of God than what was pictured in the Old Testament. We're going to be saved not just from death, but from eternal death on that day. We are going to go into the presence of the Lord on that day. Brothers and sisters, just stop and think about that day. 
you will be welcomed into the kingdom of God by your Lord and Savior, by your King, by the one who died for your sins. You're going to be welcomed into the, into the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity on that day. But are you distracted? Are you diverted from a focus on these things? Is your focus e easily shifting away from the things of eternity? What distracts you? Isn't it quite often the same sort of things that were described in Noah's day and in Lot's day? The issues of life, putting food on your table, and your work, your home, your family, all, all these things are important. All these things are necessary. But are they distracting you from a focus on the things of eternity? Are they distracting you from the kingdom of God? Unbeliever, are those things distracting you all the way to hell? But beloved, we have to confess that even we are sometimes too easily distracted by the things of this life. You know, a couple of years ago when I, I, I thought, taught through the, 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 the Lord's Prayer, the, the model or pattern prayer, remember it was, it was to be, a, as Jesus taught it, it's not meant to be just a rote prayer. You just pray these words. It's, it's something that, that you need to pray and, and really to pray daily. And, and by, by praying these things, you're actually resetting your heart and mind and, and recalibrating your heart and mind to line up with God's heart and mind. Even just, just think about a couple of petitions. In praying, give us this day your daily bread, our daily bread, you're, you're putting things in the proper place. Again, these necessary things, it represents all of the, the natural th needs of life. You're putting them in their proper place as you understand they come from God. As it causes you to, to become, uh, they become opportunities to give thanks to God for all that he's given you. As you pray, your kingdom come. Again, you're getting God's help in, in, uh, in aligning your heart with the kingdom of God, with his plans and his purposes for creation. In fact, in every petition in the prayer, you're, you're finding ways that, that, that are going to help you to seek God's help in the important areas of life and also in eternal life. Again, to seek God's help to realign your heart and mind with His. Noah wasn't a perfectly righteous man. Neither was Lot. Neither are you or I. It's not that, that Noah or Lot deserved more, more than their, their neighbors. Neither do we. But as Christians, by God's grace, we're seeking Christ and his kingdom. So again, that's, that's, that's past judgment and joy. Now let's see what the things that they ultimately point to in, in verses 31 to 37, future judgment and joy. Again, Jesus has been looking back to the past to speak about the future. So here he shifts 
very clearly, verse 31, to shift on the future. So, so it will be on that day when the Son of Man is revealed. Again, it's the same today as it was in the days of Noah and of Lot. Where people will be so consumed with the things of this life that they will ignore the things of eternal life. Now, people seek to prepare for the future, and so they should. They, they try to, to accumulate some savings. They make investments. They have health and, and life insur- insurance. They make wills. We all know that we're going to die one day. And it's, it's right. It's, it's wise to prepare for that time. It's wise to prepare for the day of our death. Those things are well and good, but, but are you really preparing for the future? Are you really preparing for the future? If the Lord tarries, you are going to die one day. What are you going to do next? Are you prepared for what's going to happen next? Are you prepared for that day? The day of your death or that the Lord's return at this day of judgment? You might not even get the chance to die. One day the Lord will tarry no longer. One day the Son of Man will be revealed. One day the book of Revelation will be fully fulfilled. Now the word that's translated revelation is apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. We talked about that last week. One day the not yet will be now. One day the Son of Man will be revealed. One day Jesus Christ the King will be revealed in all of his glory. What a joy it will be for believers to see him on that day. But for others, he'll bring the terror of judgment. On that day, verse 31, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. In that day, in that culture, most people had had patio, had rooftop patios with external stairs that, that would lead up there and they would spend a lot of time up on their, their rooftop patio. Jesus is saying here, when that day comes, don't even think about going back down and going, or going inside to get something from within your house. Leave it all behind. Likewise, if you're working in the field, don't go back for anything. Again, to think of those people in the, in the Lytton fire as, as those, as that wildfire sprang up. Our family passed through the, the Lytton, through the town of Lytton just, just shortly before the fires. And the, the wind funnels up the, the, the Fraser Canyon. It's, it's really quite a strong wind. And the people of that town had only minutes before fires turned their entire town to ashes. There was no going back to get that photo album. No going back for, for important documents. No going back for family heirlooms. It was get out now. Jesus is going to speak on this on another, speak of another occasion in Matthew and Mark and where he, he applies this principle to the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place in AD 70. And Luke is going to talk about this in, in Luke 21. But even that event, even the destruction of Jerusalem was minor compared to what's coming. In verse 32, Jesus 
again, briefly looks back to do the same. He says, remember Lot's wife. This is the second shortest verse in the entire Bible, but it provides a big reminder. Lot's wife fled along with the family at the warning of the angels. But they'd also been, been warned by the destroying angel to not look back. And we know what happened to, to Lot's wife. She looked back as the cities were being destroyed and was turned into a pillar of salt. J.C. Rowell notes that she fled with him, but she had left her heart behind her. Her feet fled, but her heart remained. Be honest with yourself. Is your heart in Sodom? Is your heart in the things of this world, the pleasures of this life? Or is your heart set on the kingdom of God? Jesus here is warning disciples to endure until the end. For it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Matthew 24, 11. Judgment is coming. Flee and don't look back. Flee like Noah into the ark. Flee like Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Flee like, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress from the city of destruction. Flee to the celestial city. Flee to Christ. Flee to the kingdom of God. The stakes could not be higher. Your life, your eternal soul is on the line. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now we saw this already as Jesus taught in, in Luke 9. Just flip back with me for a moment to Luke chapter 9, verses uh, 23 to 25. Luke 9, 23 to 25. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Notice this is daily. This is not a one-time thing. This is not okay, I've taken up my cross, now let's, let's move on to other things. No, it's daily taking up your cross and following Jesus. And following Jesus means death to self. You, you need to die not just to your sin, but to your desires, to your pleasures, to your rights, even to your needs for Jesus' sake. You are born again in an instant, but death to self is a lifelong process. Your entire life, all of it is placed on the altar and left on the altar. That's what it means to give up your life for Jesus Christ. It's all encompassing. It's, it's Jesus, it's giving Jesus everything in your life. It's handing Jesus the keys. Is there anything keeping you from bowing to Jesus now? Nothing in this life, nothing in this life or the next compares to the inestimable value of Christ with the, the sovereign authority of Christ. And people who refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus in worship will bow the knee to him in final judgment. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those who turn to Christ and walk before him in faith and repentance will experience joy for all eternity. Those who do not will experience his holy wrath and his judgment. Two groups of people. Two eternal destinies. How you respond to Jesus Christ will determine your eternal destiny. Jesus Christ is the dividing line. Jesus now goes on in verses 34 and 35 to describe the separation that's going to take place on that day. Two people in bed, one taken, the other left. Two women grinding wheat, one taken, the other left. And if, if there was a verse 36, he'd describe it there too. It's omitted in most modern Bibles. The, the weight of the Greek manuscripts doesn't include it, but, but it is in Matthew 24, 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Having a relationship with a believer will not help you. Physical proximity will not help you. Many husbands and many wives and children and, and friends and neighbors and co-workers will be on the wrong side on that day. Let it not be that because we did not warn them if you love the people that the Lord has placed in your life, you will warn them of the wrath to come and to flee from the wrath to come. Make sure you tell them about Jesus Christ. Make sure your life adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and makes the gospel of Christ appealing to unbelievers so they will ask you the reason for the hope that you have within you. I'm speaking now to unbelievers. Family and friend relationship will not save you. The only relationship that will save you is a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Flee to Christ from the wrath to come. Finally, in verse 37, the disciples asked Jesus a question. It seems to me an inappropriate question given, given what he's just been talking about, but but Jesus condescends to answer them. Where, Lord? Where will these things take place? Jesus responds here with an enigmatic, enigmatic I can't even say enigmatic, enigmatic statement. It's, it's, it's hard to understand what he's really saying here. It's been variously interpreted. But I think he, he's simply saying here that when he says where the, the vultures, where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. I, I think he's simply saying here that, that the presence of a dead body is obvious because of the presence of vultures flying above. Most birds have, have no sense of smell, but, but a vulture can, can smell a dead animal from over a mile away. I think Jesus is saying here that, that it's going to be obvious where it is because where the spiritually dead are found, judgment will follow. The stench of spiritual death will bring inevitable judgment. So in this passage, Jesus has been, been looking to the past to remind us of the future, maybe even the near future. He's reminding us to, to look back so that we will look forward. He's looking forward, looking back. I'm reminded 
of a song that's sung by Aussie folk singer Slim Dusty. I think probably Adam and I are the only ones who will know this song. It's called Looking Forward, Looking Back. Slim in the song is speaking of the issues of life, not eternal life, but it applies. Looking forward, looking back. There are strange days full of change on the way. We'll be fine, unlike some. I'll be leaning forward to see what's coming. Looking forward, looking back. I've come a long way down the track. On the plains of Moab, don't look back. In the field, don't look back. In your daily life, don't look back. Look ahead with joy for the revelation of the Son of Man. For that day when you will see the King in all of his splendor, in all of his glory. And as you begin to focus more on him, it's not just the, the sin that, that loses its appeal, but, but even the things of life. They, they're not the distraction anymore because you are seeing everything, all of life through the glory of Christ and the anticipation of the glory of Christ. Friends, we are in the end times. We've been in the end times for... 2,000 years. We're still waiting. Almost 2,000 years and we're still waiting for the revelation of the Son of Man. But on the day of the Son of Man, on the day when he's revealed, it will be evident that there are two groups of people facing two vastly different circumstances. Circumstances that are going to last for all eternity. Jesus Christ is the end. He is the eschaton. He is the, the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last, and he's everything in between. For citizens of the kingdom of God, it will be a day of rejoicing beyond anything that has ever been experienced as we bow before King Jesus in humble adoration and worship as we are welcomed into eternal life with him. But for citizens of the kingdom of darkness, it will be a day of horror beyond anything that has ever been experienced as they fall to their knees before King Jesus in terror and dread and are thrown into eternal torment, separated from him and all that is good. Jesus Christ came into the world to deliver sinners from the domain of darkness, to transfer them into the kingdom of God, Colossians 1.13. One day, the future will be present. Will you experience judgment? Will you experience joy? Let's pray together. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we praise you for the great deliverance that you have granted us from the wrath of God that we deserve. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you bore the wrath for us in your body on the tree that we might become citizens of your heavenly kingdom. And so as those who have been delivered by such a great gospel, Lord, help us, I pray, to remember all that you have done for us and to anticipate life with you for all eternity. And Lord, I pray that, that any unbelievers who are, are hearing this, that, that they would also become citizens of the kingdom of God 
that your kingdom would advance in their hearts for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.